1965, uh, the Rolling Stones were already a well-established band. They were, they were stars. But then in the summer of 65, they released their hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And that song propelled them to superstardom and ensured their rightful place in the pantheon of rock gods. That song struck a chord with millions because indeed most people can't get no satisfaction. Have you ever wondered why discontentment is so prevalent? Have you ever wondered why so many people, perhaps ourselves, go through life chronically dissatisfied? Dissatisfied with virtually everything in their lives, everything around them. Let's step back up one. Have you ever wondered what it is about people that makes it so hard for us to be content? In the summer of 74, 1974, Burger King launched its now legendary advertising slogan, Have It Your Way. And when they did this, they were taking on McDonald's head on. Because at the time, McDonald's famously would let you have food their way. And what was at the time a rather novel idea, having food your way, has now become ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And as our culture has continued to become increasingly focused on catering to the tastes of the individual, we now have products and services that allow for near-complete personalization and customization. So much so that we're at the point where ethicists talk about the propriety of designer babies. Your world is almost completely customizable. Indeed, even the old social rules and norms that we would claim kept us from expressing our personal preferences and tastes they repressed us that's the allegation even those have been swept away we face issues now that even five years ago we would have thought only a crazy person would talk about and yet this is our norm so in terms of being accommodated by physical material and even philosophical realities we are at the point in history where if it were possible to be made happy, to be satisfied, to be made content by being able to do what you want and to get what you want, you would think that it is possible. And yet, people continue to find contentment remarkably elusive. We continue to go excitedly into a new relationship only to become disillusioned and dissatisfied very shortly thereafter. So many folks graduate and they're so eager to enter the workforce only to within weeks, months, certainly years, to find themselves feeling like they're trapped and running just like hamsters on a wheel. Whether it's our careers, whether it's our marriages, whether it's our churches, we find dissatisfaction and discontentment all around us. 
Why is it so hard for us to be content? We know contentment exists because we all experience it from time to time for at least a little bit, but then it's fleeting, it's gone. Why can't it stick? Why can't we just be content? Well, in the next three sermons, that's what we're going to be talking about, contentment. And I want to get us to the point whereby in the third sermon, we're going to be looking at how to cultivate contentment. But first, we need to step back and examine, really, why is it that it's so hard for us to be content? In other words, why are we so prone to discontentment? And so we're going to do what you do in the scientific world. We're going to put something on the dissecting table. And we're going to take it apart. Or if you're in engineering, we're going to reverse engineer this baby. All right? We're going to look at discontentment. What makes it tick? What is its ultimate cause? And then hopefully next week, we'll look at the hope and the cure. But right now, we need good diagnosis before we can give good prognosis. Okay? So, today, I have one goal in mind. It's not to fill your heart with hope, though I do hope that sort of happens. But really, my my design in this sermon is we're going to look at discontentment and answer the question, why are we so chronically dissatisfied with everything in our lives? So, I believe that as we put discontentment on the examination table, and as we dissect it up, we're going to see at least three realities. First is that discontentment comes naturally to us. Second, discontentment is not caused by our circumstances or anything outside of us. And third, discontentment reveals a theological problem. Okay? So three realities. First, discontentment comes naturally to us. Think of a baby. Oh, we love those cooing, sweet little things. Oh, he's sleeping content as a baby. Yet if you've ever parented, and I'm sure most of you have, you know that a baby can become so angry at the slightest provocation that they will go rigid, they will turn colors, They'll stop breathing, just full-on infantile fury. Is it really wise of us to consider such a being as being contented? Especially when we tend to judge a baby as being content or not by how hard we have to work to make them content? Doesn't the fact that we have to work to make even a baby content imply that contentment isn't their natural state? They come into the world shocked and crying, and it doesn't get much better. (laughs) We oftentimes think that we exist as people who are basically satisfied, well-adjusted, and we're satisfied. We're just sort of there within a few degrees of, of, of being level. And it's only when something happens outside of us that we're rocked off that equilibrium and made discontent. As if we naturally, by design, exist 
in a state of contentment. And that's just not the truth. We see it in this passage. We see in this passage that contentment is actually rather elusive. Look at verses 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Okay, so the fact that he's able to say that he had to learn this contentment, and he goes so far as to call it a secret, means that it's not self-evident knowledge. It is not something that's natural to our mind and to our heart to feel. It's a secret. It's some sort of knowledge that's out there that we have to obtain from outside of ourselves. In other words, the contentment that we want is actually what is foreign and alien to us. So if contentment is foreign and alien to us, that means that discontentment, the propensity to be dissatisfied with our circumstances, is in fact what comes most naturally to us. This is indicative of a couple uh, realities. First, because discontentment comes naturally, it is also highly communicable. Dissatisfaction and grumbling and discontentment, it spreads like wildfire. Because we all exist, we're all on the verge of discontentment. I bet in the course of five seconds I could make everyone in this room angry and mad. Not that I want to, but that's how we as humans exist, perpetually prepared to become indignant and offended and dissatisfied. That is our natural state. And so because of that, it comes and it spreads like wildfire. Consider Numbers 14, where the spies come back from from investigating the land. And the two give a good report, and the bad give all this bad news. Oh, they're, they're giants in our eyes, and we're like grasshoppers to them. It didn't take them long at all for that to turn that entire congregation into murderers almost. I mean, they are prepared to kill Moses until the Lord physically shows up and stops it. They existed in a state of permanent agitability. And all it took was a little spark, and it was going up in flames. So, because discontentment is natural and it's highly communicable, we have to guard ourselves against it. We have to guard ourselves because you will very rapidly fall into what comes naturally. You will very rapidly catch it from someone else. If you hear other people around you grumbling and you don't let your guard up precisely because it comes naturally to you, you too will find yourself grumbling and complaining and dissatisfied. So we have to guard ourselves. So parents, fathers, I'm charging you as the head of the house, you need to be very careful to squelch a discontented spirit in your home officers of the church we need to work hard to squelch it in the church grumbling and complaining spreads and it will affect you it'll affect your outlook and then other people will have it too but there's a little bit of good news here and that is you're not alone in your struggle with it so oftentimes i counsel people and they think what they're going through is unique to them 
there's very few people who are truly experiencing unique things. Okay? What is troubling you is common to people. You are not alone. You struggle with dissatisfaction in your marriage. You struggle with dissatisfaction in your career. You struggle with dissatisfaction here at your church. Guess what? You're not alone. And so what we need to do then is to look together to the hope and cure that we can have. And we're going to do that next week, so come back. But right now, just know that you're not alone. You're not floundering out there. You're not, what you're experiencing is not uncommon, okay? Discontentment comes naturally. And we exist ever ready to be made discontent. Now we just to our second point. Discontentment is not caused by your circumstances or anything outside of yourself. Babies exist perpetually ready to erupt into a fit whenever their itch isn't scratched just right. If they don't get fed just when and how they want it, if they're not kept precisely as warm as they want, if you wrap them too tight, they cry. If they're not tight enough, they cry. They're perpetually prepared to be discontent with their surroundings. And many of us are no better. We are discontent with everything. We start something, oh, this is going to be great, and within weeks or months, we're just, oh, this is miserable. I'm wasting my life. I picked the wrong person to marry. I thought kids would be great, and it's terrible. We do it. But the reality is, discontentment is not caused by your circumstances. The things in your life are not what is making you discontent. You want proof? Let's look here. Look with me again at verses 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Okay, so here, Paul juxtaposes the two extremes of life. Plenty and need. Abundance and a shortfall. Okay? Fullness and hunger. He's juxtaposing the two extremes, the highs and the lows of life. And along this entire spectrum, he says he's had to learn how to be content. Now that strikes us as kind of odd, doesn't it? Because we, we naturally understand that when you're facing the, the need, when you're facing the lack, when you're facing the hunger, when you're facing the shortfall, that you would obviously be dissatisfied with that because no one wants that. But isn't it kind of odd that he has to say that he's learned how to face plenty? I'll tell you what, some of the worst times in my life were when I suddenly joined the army as a chaplain and, I, and, and overnight our pay as a family like quadrupled. We went from being low, poor seminary students who, who existed kind of happily to suddenly having more money than we know what to do with. Having plenty is something that can be hard. And Paul had to learn how to be content. Because you get some, and you just, your heart either just, this is not what I thought it would be, or in the case of J.D. Rockefeller, it's never enough. The Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts were, were richer than Bill Gates by, by, by exponential factors. 
And J.D. Rockefeller is the one who was asked, how much is enough? And we all know his famous answer, a little bit more. If you're not satisfied, you're never going to be satisfied. And so here's the lesson. Paul says that he is able to be content with a lot. He's able to be content with not much at all. But either way, he had to learn it. Because naturally, his inclination was to not be satisfied with a lot or not to be satisfied with a little. So if along the entire spectrum of life, the highs and the lows, if the entire spectrum of life is a spectrum in which it is possible to be content, simultaneously it is possible to be discontent, what this tells me is that all of life is not the problem. Your circumstance is not the problem. The highs you're facing, the lows you're facing, they are not the problem. Because according to Paul, it is possible to be content in whatever you're facing. It's also possible to be discontent in whatever you're facing. You could have the best spouse possible. Oh man, they could be like a Stepford wife or a Stepford husband or whatever. And you still not be satisfied. Likewise, you could be in a North Korean prison camp and find yourself satisfied. Your circumstance is not the problem. It's perhaps more accurate to say that our circumstances provide opportunities for our discontentedness to manifest itself. That's what it is. The circumstances you're in simply provide an opportunity for what's in here to manifest itself out. So what that means is we need to stop playing the blame game. I hear people all the time telling me why they're not satisfied. And it's always something out here. Yeah, there are people who do mean things. There are people who treat you crummy. Your spouse doesn't respect you the way they should. You, uh, just, just whatever. Stop playing the blame game. Because the problem is in here. Because if we do learn the secret, we can be content no matter what's going on around us. But for right now, just know the problem is in here. And that's hard to hear. Because you want me to tell you that the problem is that jerk spouse of yours or that jerk boss of yours or those ingrateful kids you've raised or whatever. But the problem is always in here. The problem is always in here. All right. So if the problem is internal and it's not really external, then what is the source of the issue? Well, if we go up, if we look further into this carcass on the table called discontentment, I believe that if we switch metaphors to a maritime metaphor, I believe that our discontentment is like a a mighty river. And it's fed primarily by three tributaries. The three tributaries are Greed, envy, and pride. I believe your discontentment is fueled primarily by greed, envy, and pride. Those may sound familiar to you. They are three of the seven deadly sins. The other four are wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth, I believe. Okay? So envy, greed, and pride. Now, what are these three things? Well, envy is simply an insatiable desire for more. I'm sorry, greed. Greed. 
Greed is an insatiable desire for more. You can't get enough. Whatever it is, you just got to have more. Okay, so that's what greed is. Envy is a continual uh, looking into someone else's life, thinking that the grass is always greener. They have it better. Envy is seeing what someone else has and wishing you had it. And pride. I think St. Augustine defines pride the best when he says, pride is being in love with one's own excellencies. It is pride that makes us believe that it is entirely reasonable that we should be accommodated and entirely unreasonable that we should not be accommodated. Envy, greed, and pride. Now these three moral issues are at work in our hearts so that when a circumstance happens, when a stimulus occurs, They interact with these three things that are in our hearts. Envy, greed, and pride. And if they happen to stroke one of these three things, that makes us happy. But if they happen to poke one of these three things, it makes us unhappy. So if your circumstance strokes your envy, if it strokes your greed, if it strokes your pride, You think of it as a positive circumstance. But if it pokes us in these three areas, oh, that's not good. And so we become dissatisfied. But I believe we can go even a little bit further. I believe that these three things, envy, greed, and pride, serve, to change the metaphors yet again, serve basically as bodyguards to the throne that exists in our hearts. Our envy, our greed, and our pride are basically guards that stand at the entryway. And they won't let something get to that throne that's in our hearts unless they let it. And I think this is where we see that our discontentment ultimately stems from a theological problem at its core. Okay, so our discontentment is natural to us. Our discontentment is not caused by circumstances. Rather, it comes from inside of us. And our discontentment is fueled by our greed and our envy and our pride. But ultimately, what's going on in our hearts? Look with me, if you would, at the Ten Commandments. Consider Exodus 20. The Tenth Commandment says that we shall not covet our neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's servants and donkeys or anything else that is your neighbor's. Okay, You shall not covet your neighbor's stuff, to summarize. That's the 10th commandment. Okay, And what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. So the first and the 10th commandment are basically the bookends of the 10 commandments. The beginning and the end, the opening and the close. And wouldn't you know it, they say basically the same thing, just in different language. The first and the tenth commandment both call for God to have the place of preeminence in our lives. The first commandment says it theologically, that we should have no other gods before him. The tenth commandment says it psychologically. Why is that? Because in the human heart, delight and desire are the essence of worship. 
And so when we want something that we don't have, and we start ruminating on it, we start thinking about it, we start focusing on it, we start obsessing about it, we start thinking and plotting of dreaming of how can we have it and how, how great life would be if we had it and how we can't be happy without it. And that's that coveting reveals that it has taken a place of preeminence in our lives. And only one thing has such a pull on us, and that is something that is an object of worship. And so when we covet that thing, when we just want it, it becomes an idol to us, which is precisely why in Colossians 3.5, Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. So the problem we have with our discontentment is that we are functionally serving another God. Our discontentment shows that we have an idol sitting on our heart. It may not be an idol with a name easily identified, but there's something there that we are giving preeminence to when preeminence only rightly belongs to the living God. So, this idolatry, this seeking of happiness, this seeking of contentment in the creation rather than the creator, it is the source. And we have our greed and our envy and our pride that stand ready to protect our idol. And so when our spouse smarts off to us, that offends the idol, and so our bodyguards react hostilely and repel it. But when an offering is made that pleases the idol on our heart, well, those three guards open right up and let it in, and we're content and we experience happiness and delight. But the problem, ultimately, is that the human heart is an idol factory, and we never run out of ways to put things in the place of preeminence. And this is why discontentment simmers in the background of the human experience. Because we are always struggling with what is in charge of our lives. So, we've dissected discontentment. Discontentment comes naturally to us. Discontentment is not caused by things outside of ourselves. Indeed, discontentment reveals a theological problem that we have an issue of idolatry. It is my prayer and my hope that you will leave here today and ask yourselves some diagnostic questions, some questions that may help root out and help you identify and put a name to these idols of your heart. For example, in what circumstances do you respond positively? In what circumstances do you respond negatively? What do you find yourself thinking about most often? When your mind just is allowed to roam free, where does it go? What do you find yourself talking about? These are the things that reveal our priorities in our heart and what's important to us. And it could very well be that they help us identify what is really going on in there so that we can hopefully topple that idol and replace it with the one who only can give us contentment and then begin to live a contented life, just as Paul does in these verses.
So, discontentment. It's not natural to you. I'm sorry. It is natural to you. It's not outside of you. And it reflects a theological problem. Will you do the hard work of identifying it so we can begin to root it out? Let's pray.